Um, tell us then, uh, James, a little bit, uh, before you get into your talk, um, a little bit maybe of background about mm. the organization, because not everybody, I think, was there for, uh, for, the, for the November session. So yeah, tell us all about the, what you do. Hi, I'm James. Thank you so much for coming along, and thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, International Justice Mission was set up by a man called Gary Haugen, who spoke at New Wine a few years ago. Um, and in 1994, he was the UN chief investigator during the Rwandan genocide. So he stepped into Rwanda. 800,000 people were killed in a period of 10 weeks. It was called a genocide. And he had to investigate afterwards. Um, and so Gary in that place of, uh, of suffering, um, really learnt that our attempts to serve the poor, to do international development, had been incredible. Uh, we would provide support through food, through education, through healthcare. But actually, what he experienced in Rwanda is if there is a man with a gun or a machete standing in the way of your hospital, of your school, then all of our great attempts count for nothing. So Gary set up International Justice Mission to deal with the man with the gun. So IJM is now blessed to be the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. Praise be to God. Very good. And, and you, how, did, how did you get involved? That's a great question. I used to be a youth worker, um, and I did youth work for a couple of years after university, and then I took uh, my kids to Soul Survivor, um, and they had a wonderfully uh, spirit-filled time, and they got very emotional, and they... They prayed a lot more than they showered. Um, and I, uh, during one evening session, was just praying by myself, getting a moment's respite. And Isaiah 58 has always been my favorite Bible passage um, about seeing the oppressed set free, which can be interpreted as our true fasting or our true worship. And so I did a lot of research after that, that conviction about, well, actually, who are setting the oppressed free? And IJM was doing it in the most sustainable way. So I applied for a job with them, um, and they very kindly offered me one, and I've been with them ever since. So I joined them in 2014. Excellent. Um, now, you're going to get into your talk, obviously, and I'm sure mm. lots of stuff will come out of that that uh, people will have to, to reflect on and to, uh, to think about. Uh, is there anything in specifically, maybe even while you're talking, that we can be thinking and praying about, James, particularly in terms of the work of the, mm. the organization? An end to slavery. Wouldn't that be a good prayer? Wouldn't that be an audacious prayer? And we'll explore it more. If you wanted to pray for something really specifically, um, our rescue operations vary in size dramatically from hundreds down to a couple of people each time. Um, in Calcutta, in North India, we work against sex trafficking. And just last week, we rescued just two girls. They were both under the age of 14. Pray for their restoration. Pray for them as individuals. Pray that they will come to know freedom physically, but also freedom spiritually through Jesus. Mm. That Fantastic. Be great. Well, let me, let me pray for you, and then it's over to you. Lord, um, thank you that James is here with us this evening. Thank you uh, that he is your ambassador and brings a very powerful word to us. And we just pray now that our hearts will be open uh, to that message. Strike us, Lord. Penetrate with your Holy Spirit and, and help us to see uh, clearly some of the injustices going on in the world, Lord, and to, and to know through the work of the uh, International Justice Mission just what can be done uh, in order to, to help to move people out of that condition. Lord, just pray you'll speak through James now, through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
again, just thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is James, uh, and I often get to speak at churches, which is a real privilege. Um, but the atmosphere here is wonderful. It's very rare that there's questions and there's open times of prayer, so it's such a privilege to be with you here today. Um, my weekend, personally, as you're all talking about your own, uh, looks like a stag do in Cambridge. Uh, it, was, it was very, very... Um, very, very gentle, which was good. It just consisted of lots of sport, but it does mean that due to a lot of uh, press-ups and football and frisbee, I can't physically raise my arms above here. (laughs) They just really ache. Um, So if I don't gesticulate that much above here, then I just want to ask for your forgiveness. Um, So the word justice, uh, I'm sure you know, is used a lot nowadays. Increasingly in our theology, um, it's becoming a a phrase that's just touted about a lot. Um, As I was growing up, my understanding of justice looks a bit like an experience I had in a supermarket a few weeks ago. I was in a rush, I walked into the supermarket, and my wife had asked for two items, an avocado and a pear. That tells you something about my wife's eating habits. Um, And it was a Sainsbury's, and I'm sure you're aware that in Sainsbury's they'll have a 10 items or less aisle. And so I walk to that aisle with my avocado and my pear, and I am in a rush. I really want to get out of Sainsbury's really quickly because there's stuff to do. But the queue's quite long, and so I start to fidget. I look at my phone. I don't really know what to do. And so I start just looking at the man in front of me. And he seems to have quite a full basket. So I count the items in his basket. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, 12, 13. 13 items. Now, this is unbelievable. I come to two conclusions. The sign is clear, 10 items or less. So either this man can't read or he's blatantly disregarding the rules. Now, this man is wearing a gilet, so he can read. Um, So I'm left to the only conclusion that he's just blatantly disregarding the rules. And I feel this deep sense of injustice. This is not a biblical concept of injustice. Many years ago, when I was 18, I got the chance to go to Zimbabwe to work with a missions organization with an orphanage. Uh, The orphanage was situated outside of Harare, the capital, and while I was there, we were just serving in this orphanage for six months. Two weeks into our time there, the orphanage was closed down by the social services. They don't look like our social services. Opposite the orphanage was another building, a building which sometimes meant that the girls disappeared during the day. The building opposite the orphanage was a brothel. When the orphanage closed down, there was no alternative. The injustice of this world is where those with power take advantage of those without if it's an individual or if it's a people group, we see this form of biblical injustice throughout the Bible. And time and time and time and time and time again, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament judges are called to bring freedom to God's people so that they can worship him in the wilderness. This is biblical injustice. And so what is justice? Next slide. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
Justice is to bring the scales back into balance. It's not just to make sure that the orphanage is open. It's to make sure that it's completely unacceptable for the girls to enter the brothel, to be taken in there. Justice is about bringing things back into God's wholeness of community, wholeness of life. And justice, we know, isn't on the periphery of God's heart because justice and the poor are mentioned 3,000 times in the Bible. 3,000 verses talk about justice and the poor. So I don't know if we've got a Bible to hand, but if you take those 3,000 passages out of the Bible, your Bible literally falls apart. God's heart for the poor is so clearly on his agenda. I have a friend who uh, studied a PhD in theology, um, so he's very clever, but he also likes to draw little diagrams of theology. And he draws this diagram. Um, You can see the blue line is uh, about destruction. The red line is the bits that people like to quote, and this is all about Micah. And you can see that the only bit of Micah we like to quote is the bit that isn't about destruction. Um, He's very funny like this. I find that a very funny diagram. And that's actually the verse that I picked today, partially because of the irony of this diagram. But what we are thoroughly aware of, and what I was thoroughly aware of while I was in that orphanage, is that I was helpless to respond. I was on a tourist visa. I couldn't exactly walk into this brothel. And I can't walk into this brothel for a multitude of reasons, but there's one very clear reason, which is that the men in the brothel have guns. And the people in the orphanage didn't. Coming back to the idea that Gary Haugen had in Rwanda, that when violence is part of the equation, all of our incredibly good intentions to serve those that are least, last, and lost dissolves. Injustice in our world is overwhelming. It can look like this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And when we're faced by overwhelming injustice, there's one incredibly easy thing to do. Switch off. Because we just do not know where to start. We don't know what to do. The problem seems so incredibly massive. And we can sense the suffering. And we can empathize. But if that empathy has no action, then we don't know how to respond proactively. And so we switch off. Because actually, what can I do? What am I called towards? One of the manifestations of our work is ending slavery. If you don't know, there are now more slaves in the world than at any other time in human history. More than 400 years combined of the transatlantic slave trade, where British slave masters would steal people from Africa and take them to American plantations. 400 years of that process, and there are more slaves today. Global Slavery Index puts it at 45.8 million slaves. This includes victims of sex trafficking, bonded labor, and that is overwhelming. You will be very familiar with the story of Moses. We all know that Moses spends his time growing up in a privileged position. Um, He sees injustice firsthand. He doesn't know how to respond, so he kills a slave master. 
realizes this wasn't a good idea in the first place and runs away. He uh, gets married and he has a long career as a shepherd. And at an age of around about 80, we pick up in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses meets God in the form of a burning bush. A burning bush that literally does not go out. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure we've all thought that in that kind of position, I would be thoroughly freaked out. I wouldn't know what to do. We pick up Moses at a point where he is carrying this burden that he's carried for his lifetime because his people are in slavery. Generation after generation after generation of slavery. And he doesn't know what to do because it's overwhelming. And so God tries to persuade Moses to respond. And Moses tries to find every possible loophole to get out of helping to end slavery because the problem is too big and Moses feels too small. He's a murderer. He has a speech impediment. Nothing he feels is going his way. He is not the right person to advocate and speak to the most powerful world at the time, Pharaoh. But God doesn't pick the mighty. God picks the unexpected. He picks us because then it is hit through his strength. And he tells Moses to do one thing because Moses' hands are empty. He feels completely unprepared. So at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, Moses... What is in your hands? It's a staff, his profession, the shepherd that he has been. And using his profession, he responds. This becomes a snake. This helps him do the miracles that happen in Egypt and also the plagues. But what does God do? He empowers his people with what they already have. I have a friend called Harry. And Harry decided, after he finished his degree, that he wanted to serve with us, International Justice Mission. Harry had Isaiah 58 on his heart. He was convicted, and so he went out to India. He went out to a place called Chennai in the south of India, where we combat bonded labor slavery. Now, Harry uh, spends a lot of the time in the office, just serving our team in the office. Um, But then one day, there's a lot of pandemonium because a really, really big rescue operation is going to happen. So Harry gets to join this rescue operation. In this rescue operation, there is a village outside of Chennai where people are being kept in bonded labor for decades. Harry gets to see people walk out of there. And it wasn't five people. It wasn't ten people. It was 564 people. Men, women, children, and babies. Now, this is incredibly hard for me to comprehend because what you have is Harry witnessing 564 people experiencing exodus, freedom for the first time. And the smell is overwhelming. The dust is just putting everything into a haze. And all of these slaves walk into freedom onto a train so that they can enter into the freedom and into a restoration process. But the train can't take everyone, so there has to be a second train. The nets were too full.
when they initially went into the brick kiln to rescue these families from slavery, one of our social workers from India steps forward and just asks one incredibly simple question to 564 people. Would you like to be free? She says this in their language, and the entire community is just taken aback because this is never a question they've been able to comprehend. What does it mean to not work seven days a week, 18 hours a day? What does it mean to have a Sabbath? And then one woman puts up her hand. And then one by one by one, everyone else raises their hands as they say they want to be free. This is what we do. International Justice Mission is blessed to work across the globe combating slavery, sex trafficking, and other forms of violence against the poor. The first step is incredibly clear. We need to rescue people from these situations. If it's the two girls I mentioned in Calcutta, if it's 564 in Chennai, we need to bring people into freedom. The incredible thing is we're seeing this happen more and more and more and more. We have teams of investigators in each of our offices who collect evidence that they then take to the police. So this isn't some kind of vigilante operation. The vision of IJM is to empower a nation's justice system. The vision is that we're unemployed. The vision is that actually all of the assumptions we make about a 999 phone call are a reality for everyone across the globe. But unfortunately at the moment, for 4 billion people, when you phone 999, either the police won't come or they will cause you harm. And so we work with the police to train them to work out where is the corruption and how can we bring freedom in a really systemic way. Then after we've rescued these individuals, they need to be restored. The restoration process currently in the UK uh, is a 45-day contract given to the Salvation Army. In India, we restore individuals for a minimum of two years. Because restoration takes a lifetime. So two years is incredibly imperfect. If they're a minor, it's substantially longer. But in that time, they will be provided with the skills, with the education, with the safety that they need, so that they know and can taste freedom in its fullest. And then finally, you have to bring the criminals to justice. In Bolivia, a trafficker is more likely to slip in the shower and die than be convicted for his crimes. In India, a slave master is more likely to be struck by lightning than convicted for his crimes. And so in this atmosphere, you can see how it's so incredibly normal that a brothel lives next door to an orphanage. Justice in the Hebrew, one element means corrective justice. There has to be consequences to our actions so that we can come to a place of repentance. So by working with the police and the justice system, 
we help take these cases through court, which is incredibly long, it's incredibly boring, but as soon as you're able to see criminals put away, then you see this ripple effect, because most criminals are doing this because it's easy and because it's lucrative. So as soon as you make it difficult to traffic a six-year-old girl, most people realise it's not acceptable. And this is what we do. We rescue and restore, and then we convict criminals working in the justice system. And this is what we called... Next slide. Strengthening the justice system. I don't know if you've seen, but those four parts of the process actually resonate directly with verses 6 to 11 in Isaiah 58. So you'll understand how when I was at Soul Survivor, there was literally no alternative to me working for IJM. This is incredibly powerful because actually this is an assumption we make about our entire society, that this happens. And so it's the hope for international development. It's hope for the future. But all of this has to be deeply underpinned by one thing that each member of our team does across the globe twice a day. We pray. Because there is no way that we are going to see an end to slavery and trafficking without the power of our sovereign God. There is no way that we will see a new exodus unless we call on the sovereignty of the God who brought about the first exodus. Now, all of this is me just talking. So I'd love to show you a very short video that helps bring this to life. This is a story about a very large lake in Ghana called Lake Volta. It um, spans about 3% of the entire landmass of Ghana, which is really substantial. And we estimate that on this lake, there's a minimum of 15,000 boys and girls who are kept as slaves in the fishing industry.
child of God deserves to be free. Go ahead. Now, Skip this ad. Those incredible hope. commission takers wouldn't want you to see it. They wouldn't want you to see the it. The incredible hope is that we've seen this work. In the Philippines, we started working there in 2006, combating sex trafficking. The Bill Gates Foundation came alongside us. And we did some studies at the beginning and the end of the work. At the beginning, they predicted that audaciously they would hope us to see a 20% reduction in the sex trafficking of minors in the industry. At the end of the allotted four years, we saw a 79% reduction. Because the police knew what they were doing. Because the lawyers were able to work in effective courts because the social workers were able to restore the victims and because the church was there to underpin it all. This isn't rocket science. It's just a new exodus. And there is such hope because we can see the tangible solution and suddenly the injustice that should be overwhelming is something we can overcome. I want to finish with one short story. In 1785, there's a man called Thomas Clarkson. Thomas Clarkson was fairly clever. And so, um, as a hobby, he decided to enter a Latin essay writing competition. I don't know about you, but I don't do that in my spare time. The title of the Latin essay writing competition was, Is it immoral to enslave the unwilling? In 1785, slavery wasn't a part of British culture. Slavery was the foundation of British culture. So Thomas Clarkson does his research, he reads his Bible, he looks at the evidence, and he comes to the conclusion in Latin that slavery isn't acceptable. Now, he steps away from that essay. He wins the competition, but that's not the point of the essay. What happens while he writes this essay is God plants a seed in his heart. He has two options. He can nag like Moses, and he can run away from the issue, or he can do what Moses did eventually, which is pick up his staff and see what he had in his hands. 
And Thomas Clarkson did the only two things that he knew that he could do. He prayed and he spoke to every individual he could about maybe there was an alternative way. Maybe our culture could look differently. And after two years of his prayers and of his attempts to speak to people about ending slavery, he sat down with one man called William Wilberforce. And we start to see a movement rise. But this is not something that happens over one summer. I'm sure you all know that a movement starts to grow. Oliado Equiano, Hannah Moore, they write poetry, they write literature, they raise funds and they pray fervently. And suddenly the church starts to rise up. And after 48 years of perseverance, they see an end to slavery across the entire British Empire. There is a growing movement of people who are in this for the long haul, of people who believe that this is only possible through desperate prayers to our sovereign God. I invite you to be an abolitionist. I invite you to join with us today. First and foremost, through prayer. We have seen some incredible transformations through the power of prayer. We have seen people come to be free. We have seen justice systems transformed. One of my favorite quotes is by a missionary called James Hudson Taylor. who says that every great work of God is first impossible, then it's difficult, then it's done. We've seen that slavery, it's not impossible to end. It's just really, really difficult. So would you pray with us? I'll be standing out there um, just as you exit the church. You can run past me or you can come and I will take your email address and we will send you news about our rescue operations. And then there's forms which can help you to give if you want to give or to connect with us in other ways. But the first thing you need to do is pray, is this something that God is placing on your heart? Like he did with Moses, like he did with Thomas Clarkson, like he did with Gary Haugen. Let's pray.